Father in heaven, it is good to laugh together with our family. Good to laugh together with our brothers and sisters. And thank you for that gift and allowing it to be a part of our worship. We pray that everything that happens here is pleasing and acceptable to you. We really do. Over the course of these next few moments, Lord, we're going to look at some difficult things in your word. But I know that you want us to not only understand them, but to grasp them and to live them. You know how hard this is for us. So would you teach us? Would you convict us? Would you change us where necessary? And then help us take steps into the freedom that you have promised us through this path. We're praying all of that with great faith, knowing that you hear us, that you love us, and that you respond to us. In Jesus' name, amen. If you are on our email list, you received an email from me this past week. I don't very often send out emails like this at all. If you're not on our email list and would like to be so that you receive messages from the church, be sure and just write that when we do the the books at the end of the service. Write your email address in there, and we'll make sure you get on that list. Well, in this letter, I talked about what we're going to be discussing, not only today, but next week in the messages. A very difficult topic for many people, the topic of forgiveness. It's not easy for anybody. It is not easy when we decide that we want to live within it, extend it to other people, and even receive it ourselves. It requires some big, bold, hard steps. In that letter, I asked people to do two things. The first was to prioritize church attendance, be here to hear these messages. And the second thing I asked, was that if anybody had experienced a God-sized story of forgiveness, would you please share it with me? I thought I would get five or six letters back. Last night, about 10 o'clock, I got the last one that I'd received so far. That puts me at 34. 34 stories of God-sized forgiveness. They are great stories. Some of them are finished. The forgiveness has happened It has taken place, and there has been great grace and mercy extended on both sides of the discussion. Some of them are still in process, and that's okay. They're just talking about what God is doing in their life and how He is taking them through these different situations. I'm going to be sharing with you a lot of excerpts out of many of those stories next Sunday. I'm not exactly sure what that's going to look like yet. God knows, but you want to be here so that you can see it. There are some wonderful nuggets. I would call them gold nuggets of spirituality that people have shared back with me, and I want to pass those on to you, and that'll be happening next Sunday. But to get things going this morning, I want to share with you just one little excerpt from one of those stories. You may very well identify with it. Take a look at this. This person is speaking of a a relationship in which they were very close to the other person, and that person wounded them deeply, deeply. And it was a long process for this person to be able to release that. Listen to what they write. I was not only hurt, but also angry, frustrated, anxious, and confused. Why? What did I do wrong? How could this happen? Will I ever be able to forgive them? How can I, whenever I think of them or the situation, I feel all of those feelings rush back and overwhelm me all over again? I would venture a guess that a majority of people sitting in this room right now that have wrestled with issues of forgiveness know exactly what they're talking about. I think I get past it. I think it's behind me. And then the next thing I know, all I have to do is throw a casual thought that direction and all of those feelings come rushing back and it's overwhelming. 
it can be intimidating and almost feel like we are drowning in those feelings. And that's what they're writing about right here. Now, the, the fun part of this story is it is finished. And I'll share with you some more of that next week. This one is taken care of, but for many people, this is exactly where we live. All I have to do is think for just a moment about it, and that weight comes to rest on me. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Look at all those hands that are up. Many people in this room know exactly what I'm talking about. So you might choose to sit down and share the whole situation, all of the circumstances with somebody else. You know that they're a good friend, and in their well-meaning intentions, they would say something to you like this. Well, you just need to forgive it, forget it, and move on past it. They mean well when they say that. They really do. But if C.S. Lewis were standing there with the two of you and they're saying that, he might lean over to you and whisper this in your ear. Take a look at this. Everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. The old author really knows what he's talking about. It's easy for us to say to somebody else, you just need to forgive this whole thing, forget it, and move on. It is much more difficult to do that. And that's what C.S. Lewis was saying. It's a great idea and an easy one to give to other people, but once you have been the one that has received the offense, actually doing it is difficult. But if we don't, folks, if we don't, a lack of forgiveness can cause all kinds of things to happen in our life. It can bring about severe anger issues. A lack of forgiveness can cause us to experience loneliness like we have never experienced before and bitterness and isolation and cynicism. It can cause a bondage in our life that brings about the foundational trust issues that destroy relationships. It'll cause intimacy problems. It will cause division within relationships, spiritual distance. And if we're not careful, a lack of forgiveness will actually cause us to begin to develop a general dislike, if not disassociation, from people in general. We start to guard our heart in such a way that we won't let anybody get close to us because they might hurt us like some of these other people have hurt us. So I will just stay away. I will stay distant. Yet there's a central theme in the Bible that says we have to learn how to forgive because we have been forgiven. If we miss that theme, then we miss the bulk of what Scripture talks about. And I want to tell you this. It's important enough that we have to figure it out. We have to figure it out. Or we will spend our lives walking around in a dark, dark place. The Bible actually tells us how to do it. This is found in Colossians chapter 3. Hopefully you brought your Bibles with you. We're going to be in some different passages today that I really want you to open up and look at with me, beginning with Colossians chapter 3, verse 13. There's a scene in the movie Crimson Tide. Denzel Washington actually makes this statement, speaking about the release of nuclear weapons and, the, and the, the things that happened in that movie surrounding the release of those. And he makes this statement. This is one of those things that I want to get right. I would rather go down myself than get this one wrong. And that really is how we should approach this exact same scenario. This is one of those things I really want to get right. I would rather go down myself than get this one wrong. Because to miss this means that we miss a lot of what God has in store for us. Chapter 3, verse 13, book of Colossians. Listen to Paul. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive 
as the Lord forgave you. And we're going to come back to that passage in just a little bit. So I want to encourage you to put a marker in your Bible or keep your finger there as we go some different places because it will be very important for you to see this verse and understand it by the time we wrap this up. One of the goals that I've had in this sermon series is to take us back to some of the stories of the past, some of the ancient stories of the Bible that we might learn from them. That's why Habakkuk said, I've heard what you have done in the past and I stand in awe of it. We really should stand in awe of those stories as we learn from them and figure out how to apply them. Today I'm going to take you to a very unique place, one that some of you will believe that you are really familiar with and then you'll find out that you only knew a part of the story. Some of you are going to think, well, I've heard of it, but I've never really put all the things together. So it's going to be, in essence, a first introduction for you to this person in the Old Testament. And some of the rest of you are going to say, I really have walked through this story before. Hopefully you'll see it in a new light. We're going to go to the Old Testament book of Jonah. Why don't you turn there with me? Now, you might think to yourself, gosh, I've heard the name. I've heard the story. I know that it's in the Bible. Didn't really know that there was a book dedicated to the whole story. Where do you find the book of Jonah? Well, that's simple. It is buried in the minor prophets of the Old Testament. If you find the book of Micah, turn left one book, you're there. Makes it easier, doesn't it? Okay, this will dial you in. If you can find that book that everybody loves to read, the book of Nahum, and then go left two books, you're in the book of Jonah. Here's the story. Jonah is God's prophet during this time. King Hezekiah is reigning over Israel. The prophet Isaiah is also around during these days. The prophets of God were given an important task. God would say to them, I want you to go to a certain place and preach to a certain people, most often a message of revival and a message of repentance. And that's exactly what happens with Jonah. God comes to him and says, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh and preach to them that very message, message of revival and a message of repentance. Chapter 1, verse 1, listen to how this starts. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Now, you understand exactly what's happened here. God says to him, go to Nineveh, but listen to what Jonah does. Jonah says to God, in essence, no, thank you. I don't want to do that. And he turns and goes exactly the opposite direction. He doesn't just take a different path. He turns and goes the exact opposite direction as fast as he can, gets on a ship even, he is going to put water and land between himself and the city of Nineveh. He's going to put all of that between himself and God's plan and God's decree. So he's on his way to Tarshish. Now, most people, if we were to ask you why he did that, would say, because the people in Nineveh were so wicked, because the people that lived around that region were so horrible, their sins made Jonah say, I want nothing to do with them. There's actually a lot more to that. To believe that marginalizes the real essence of what is going on here. I want to give credit to a historian named Daniel Carlin, who has done a lot of this study. A lot of what I'm about to share with you comes from him. There are other historians that have come close to saying what he has said, but Carlin actually goes all the way into it. He removes all political correctness from the story and just puts it out there so that we can understand exactly what was going on. And again, I want to make sure that he gets credit for the work that he has done. This is his research. Carlin says, 
and this is not just his, but Carlin starts out by telling us that Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrian kingdom. And the Assyrian dynasty was immense. In fact, it was one of the biggest dynasties prior to the Roman Empire that anybody had ever seen. The Assyrians ruled not just a small area, but a major region of the world. It all fell underneath them. Most of that came to them through conquest. They were brutal people. Carlin would say that their their kingdom was notorious, their reign was notorious, but so was their terror. He would go on to say, in essence, they were the inventors of terrorism, and they make modern-day terrorists look like nothing. The things that these people would do, the Assyrians, it's just mind-boggling. When they would go into a city that had rebelled against them, the historians would say that when they left, that city would look like a nuclear bomb had gone off. The only difference is they did it all by hand. They would kill the people that lived there. They would kill the livestock that lived within the confines of the city. They would level the buildings and leave nothing but smoking piles of ash. And all of that was done with their hands. All of that was done in ancient warfare. One of the annals of the kings of Assyria would actually write this down. This is his own record of what he had done. Listen to this. I built a pillar over the city gate and filleted all the chiefs who revolted, and I covered the pillar with their skin. Some I impaled on the pillar on stakes. Some I bound to stakes around the pillar, and I cut the limbs off of the royal officers who had rebelled. Many captives among them I burned with fire. I took some living captives, and I cut off their noses, their ears, and their fingers. Of many I put out their eyes. These are the living ones. He was proud of what he had done proud of the way he had destroyed and decimated these people. More often than not, when they came up against a new group of people, they would destroy every one of them, kill them all, wipe them out. But for some reason, the Assyrian kings reserved a special kind of terror and punishment, torture, if you will, for the Jewish people. You see, in those days, a person became a Jew by birth. They were born into it. It was their heritage. Their heritage mattered to them a great deal, and they were working very hard under God's command to protect their lineage, to protect their lines. They didn't want anybody to intermarry and then begin to dilute the lineage of Judaism. So they worked extremely hard, pouring all of their effort into making sure that their people would not intermarry. The kings of Assyria knew that. So rather than destroying and wiping out the Jewish people when they went into the northern kingdom of Israel, what they chose to do was dilute the lineage. So the kings of Assyria took their people into Israel. They took captive both men and women, and they forced them to marry Assyrians. When the women gave birth, they gave birth to a half-breed of children, half Assyrian and half Jew. The Jews looked at those people that chose to stay alive and marry the Assyrians with great disdain. And they brought huge judgment on the children that they bore. Interestingly enough, that is the birthplace of the Samaritan race, the Samaritan people. When you get into the New Testament, you learn about the Samaritan woman at the well. She was out there at 3 o'clock in the afternoon when all of the Jewish women would go early in the morning or late in the evening. That Samaritan lady had to go by herself because Jews hate Samaritans. They cannot stand them. It is a racial issue. They literally cannot 
stand them. The Good Samaritan, you've heard that whole story. That is all because the Jews have no use for them. They look at the Samaritans and they think to themselves, your ancestors were weak-willed. They weren't strong enough to stand up for what we believe, and you are a direct result of that. So they look at them with extreme disgust. Jonah was a Jew. Nineveh was a place where the Samaritans lived. And God says to Jonah, you go there and preach. And Jonah says, no. Jonah says, I don't want any part of that. You can imagine what he was wrestling with. Some of you may have wrestled with things like that in your own life. Racial prejudices that cause you from seeing any value in people different than yourselves. That's what was going on here. Jonah said, I'm not going to have any part of it. And he went the other way. Even though God told him to go and preach revival and repentance, Jonah said, I will not because of who they are. So listen to what happens. He's in the boat. They're out in the middle of the, the ocean. By the way, Jonah is, a, is only four chapters in its entirety. We're going to make our way through the whole thing. I'm not going to read it all to you. I just want you to pull out the, the important parts here. Verse 11 of chapter 1. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried to the Lord, O Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. Now that's where most people stop in the story of Jonah. They may find out at the end of chapter 2 that after those three days, the fish vomited Jonah back out onto the beach, and he went and preached to Nineveh. That's the marginalizing of this whole book. You have to see what happens after that point. Now, Jonah's been thrown overboard. He is sinking into the depths of the ocean. Listen to how he writes about that. Chapter 2. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From the depths of the grave, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me, the deep surrounded me, seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down, the earth beneath barred me in forever, but you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. Let's stop there for just a second, we're going to chase a rabbit with one another. Richard Kendall was telling me before first service started that he heard somebody this past week, prominent individual, that said the Old Testament in particular is full of a group of myths that that's all it is. They're not literal stories and they can't be trusted. And they cited the book of Jonah as a record of that. Now, most people believe that what happened was Jonah was thrown over the edge of the boat and a giant fish came up and grabbed him right away. And then the fish went down and he stayed there for three days. Did you hear what Jonah said? He was not in the water for a short amount of time 
before the fish came to get him. Seaweed was wrapped around his head. He was sinking down to the actual mountains of the ocean. And there's people that would tell you, scientists that would tell you, that the oceans that are underwater are higher than those that we see around us. He was sinking down into those depths. The book of Job actually tells us about a sea creature so big, the only name for it was Leviathan. So there's no reason for us to believe that what happened, or not believe, that what happened was Jonah was sinking down into the depths of the ocean, and that creature that Job spoke about, Leviathan, grabbed hold of him, swallowed him, and he stayed there for three days. In the process of that, something happened in Jonah's life. Verse 7, listen to this. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, O Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. Jonah began to surrender from inside the fish. Remember why he was there. He hated this group of people. He couldn't even stand to look at them. He wanted nothing to do with them, let alone have to go to preach to them. And now he's in the belly of a fish because of his hatred, because of a lack of forgiveness that comes from him as well as his ancestry. They looked upon these people with so much disgust that Jonah is in the belly of the fish. It stinks in fish. It's dark in fish. It feels bad inside fish. It's not a place anybody would want to live, and that's where he was at. Inside the fish, some of you know exactly what it is like to be there. Not physically, but spiritually. And anybody that has wrestled with a lack of forgiveness in their heart knows what it's like to be in the belly of a fish. Some of you would long for it to only be for three days because you've been there for three years or three decades holding on to some hurts of the past that you cannot let go of and it stinks and it feels bad, and it's dark, and you just want out. And that's where Jonah was at. He actually used terminology like this. The grace that is available, I don't want to miss that. The grace that is there for other people, Lord, I don't want to miss that. What I have told you I will do, which means being a prophet, what I told you I will do, I will do, because I don't want to miss your grace. Now listen to what happened. Verse 10, and the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. That's how he got out, through surrendering to God. Lord, I'm wrong. I don't want to live this way. I don't want to feel this way. I don't want to stay in here where it's dark, and it stinks, and it feels bad. I'm sorry. And that's the point in which God said to the fish, get rid of him. And Jonah was puked back out. Wouldn't that be a relief? Three days inside the belly of the fish, it's dark, it stinks, it's feel bad. And now after three days, you're out there. Nobody wants to be around you because you smell like the inside of a fish, but you're out and you don't have to live there anymore and you don't have to be there anymore. What freedom that had to have been and what freedom it is for people that have experienced it. For those that have been inside the belly of a fish for a long time because their heart has been dark through a lack of forgiveness, to get out of that is freeing. It doesn't stink doesn't feel bad, and there is light all around you. I want you to listen to what happens. Chapter 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. 
Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. Now, you have got to understand what Jonah did. Jonah went to Nineveh. He did what he told God he would do. And he is actually faithful in saying, God, I will tell them what you want me to say. But did you catch his message? In 40 days, the city of Nineveh will be destroyed. So he's walking through Nineveh, huge place, 120,000 people live there, 120,000 people in this community, and he's got to walk from one end to the other and from the other end to the other end. And that's how he's preaching. In 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. It is a disgustingly half-hearted attempt to do what God wanted him to do because he didn't want to be there. This isn't a huge message he's preaching. It is just in 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. But you know what happens? Read on through chapter 3. The kings of Assyria and the rulers of Nineveh and all the people around there heard the message and they responded to it. They started to repent. They actually went into a fast and went back to the things that God said was important. And do you know why? It's because of God. It was not because of Jonah. It had little to nothing to do with the message Jonah was preaching. His faithfulness brought about God's reaction. And God's reaction was to cut to the heart of the people living in the city of Nineveh. Folks, it still works that way, even in forgiveness. It really does. Sometimes what is required from us in the realm of forgiveness is our obedience. God does the rest. If you wait for your own ability to take care of the whole situation, it will never come. Sometimes what you have to do is simply be obedient and move forward into it. Even if, this is going to sound weird, even if your heart is not in it, God will take care of the rest. And let me illustrate that for you. I just lived it two weeks ago. There's a fellow that had been in our community for a while that really developed a, a healthy dislike for me. And he said all kinds of different things about me. That happens to preachers, happens to everybody. He said all kinds of horrible things about me, thought even worse things about me. Anybody that would give him an audience, he was willing to share whatever he thought. Now, some of that came because there had been some confrontation between us, and I had to address some things that were happening in his life that he really didn't appreciate. And so as a result of that, he, he despised me. In his own words, he hated me. I hadn't talked to him in, in quite some time. And I received an email just out of the blue from him asking me to forgive him. He said that the Lord had told him that he needed to make contact with me and seek my forgiveness, that he had been wrong and he needed me to extend that to him. There was a mix-up in the first email that he sent to me, though, that made it look like that was not what he was saying at all. And so we, uh, we actually ended up talking about that, but I'll tell you the rest of the story. So we emailed back and forth for about a week, week and a half to one another. In the process of that, it seemed to me that if we were really going to make our way through this, then we were going to have to sit down and talk face to face. Now, between you and I, and I'm going to ask you just to keep this between us. You don't need to share it anyplace else. So our secret, I did not want to talk to him. I knew what he had said about me. Some of it he had said to me, but I really knew what he had said about me. I knew the accusations and the threats that had been leveled my direction. And so when I'm emailing him back saying, we need to sit down and talk face to face, that was a half-hearted attempt. There was a part of me that was actually thinking, please reject it, please reject it, please reject it. And he didn't. He accepted it. I was mad. 
And I thought, oh man, what am I going to do now? I've got to talk to this guy. So we set an appointment to sit down and talk face to face. And we did. We spent two hours together. And God did the rest. Neither one of us wanted to be there. And we both acknowledged that to the other person. And which is kind of fun when you're able to say, you know what, I don't want to be here. And he says, neither do I. But we're here because God told us to be here. So let's see what God does. And God does good stuff. Even if it is a half-hearted attempt in obedience to do what God tells you to do, forgiveness can still happen. Revival can still happen. Reconciliation can still happen. At the end of our conversation, we shook hands with one another and agreed that we would stay in contact with the other person. There was forgiveness on both sides of the issue. And we were able to say to the other person, hey, I want to extend to you what you have extended to me. And God does that. And he's the only one that does that. Amen? Folks, that doesn't happen until you take a step into it, even in obedience. We get squared off against people and we think, there's no way I'm ever going to talk to them again. I don't care if they talk to me. They can talk to me all they want, but I'm not going to talk to them. And I'm not going to do anything to try to get back together with them. And when we do that, we miss what God has in store for us. We live in bondage. And that bondage is hard to break. It really is. And even when we do make those half-hearted attempts and we see what happens, sometimes if our heart does not get turned inside out by the Lord, we can hold on to things that are not ours to hold on to. Jonah did. Look at this in chapter 4. Jonah has, in chapter 3, gone into Nineveh. He's preached. The people have heard the message. They've been cut to the heart. They have repented. They've turned back to the ways of the Lord. This is chapter 4, verse 1. Listen to this. This is part of the story that a lot of people have no idea about. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, O oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That's why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a generous and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O oh Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Follow what just happened here. The people responded to God. They were changing their ways. As a prophet, he should have been thrilled. More people responded to him than probably any other prophet in all of the Old Testament. And he is greatly displeased. He goes on to say, Lord, I knew this would happen. I knew they would turn around. And I knew that you would forgive them. That's why I didn't want to go. He was nearly suicidal over it. It would have been better for me to have not been born than to have witnessed this. Jonah's heart was not turned inside out. Listen to what God says to him. Verse 4. The Lord replied, Have you any right to be angry? That's a good question. On through the rest of chapter 4, what you will find is that Jonah went off to pout. He was sitting out in the sun. God grew a vine behind him to provide shade for him. Then he sent a worm to eat the vine, and Jonah got even angrier at God for that. You gave me what I needed, then you took it away. How dare you, God? You see, when there is no forgiveness, that's what happens in our heart. It really is. We start to blame God for all kinds of different things. We hold on to things that we shouldn't be holding on to. And God says to him, do you have any right to be angry? Now, this is where this gets really personal. Most of us, when we have experienced an offense, we begin to hold on to rights that we believe we have. One of those rights is revenge. We believe that somebody owes us something, and until they pay it, we will hate them, despise them, dislike them, 
refuse to forgive them. That's our right. And that is a worldly right that you see all around us. Look at a lot of the movies that are coming out today. They are revenge-based. And the producers of those movies want us to get on the side of the person that is seeking the revenge. They really do because that's the way the world sees it. They owe you something. You go after it until you get it. Danny Brossman said this to me a number of years ago. I have never forgotten it. This is just great medicine. Danny said, one of the things that makes Christianity different than any other religion is that we have the right to give up our rights. In Christianity, we have the right to give up our right to revenge, to just say, I don't want to deal with this anymore. That is God's way of doing things. And folks, you need to know from the prophet Isaiah that God's ways are higher than ours. This is Isaiah chapter 55, verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, my thoughts higher than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is the word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I send it. God's ways are higher than ours. That is particularly true in forgiveness because God says if you want to live free, you have to forgive other people. That's what breaks the bondage. We get held in captive by our own thoughts of anger and resentment and hurt. And they keep us from experiencing the life that God wants us to have. So God's ways, higher than ours, says you've got to forgive. And you have to move past this. question might be then, how do I do that? How do I pull it off? Well, I stole this from Doyle Roth. Doyle preached here a few weeks ago. He was actually here with his wife, Jean, for our marriage retreat. And while we were in Canada, he actually used this illustration. I loved it. I had never seen it like this before, and I loved it. Here's what he teaches. He says that when somebody does something to us, we experience an injury. And that's true. Whether that's a heart injury or whether that's a physical injury, whatever that might have been. For Jonah, the injury was actually tied to what the Assyrians had stolen from the Jews. Most injuries fit in that category. They steal something from us. So a lot of the things that we cannot forgive are all tied to what people took from us. Maybe that was an idea. Maybe that was a fantasy. Maybe that was a relationship. Maybe that was your childhood. Maybe that was your marriage. It could be any number of different things that people took from us by their actions. It causes an injury within us. And all injuries of this magnitude, according to Doyle, require or produce a debt. That's what they owe us for what they did to us. Now that comes out in all kinds of different ways. People will make statements like this to you after they have hurt you. What can I do to make it right? They're speaking in the realm of the debt. How can I make this whole thing go away? How can I set the record straight? Because I know what I did was wrong. That's coming from this side. More than actually this side, those words define the debt. Well, biblical forgiveness says that we have to deal with this long before we can ever deal with this. And biblical forgiveness wipes this out. It takes care of the debt. The injury then doesn't matter because the debt has been paid. 
Now, you can look at that and think, just like C.S. Lewis would say, that's real easy to say until you have to deal with it yourself. But the Bible actually gives us a pattern for how to handle it. Let's go back to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 3, verse 13. Hopefully you kept a marker there. We are about to jump right into the deep end of the biblical pool. We're not going to wait around. This is not the kiddie pool. We are going into the deep end. This is one of those passages of Scripture that you have got to read very critically or you will miss it. And a number of people have missed the significance of this verse of Scripture and what it teaches because they have not chosen to jump into the deep end and swim there for a while. So that's where we're going. Everybody shake your head yes. You're willing to go with me. Wow, there was little commitment to that. Shake your head emphatically. Here we go. We're jumping into the deep end of the pool. Listen to Paul's writing. It's up on the screen for you. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Now, here's what I mean by having to read this critically. A number of people, whether they would read it out of their mouth this way, would read it in their hearts one of these three ways. It would look like this. Forgive because the Lord forgave you. And if they don't feel that way, then they're going to feel like this. Forgive for the Lord forgave you. Or it might even sound like this. Forgive like the Lord forgave you. But that is not what Paul says. Paul says, bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Here's the depth of that. If you want to experience true biblical forgiveness and you have relationships in your life where there is great distance between you and another person because of injuries and offenses that have happened and you want to now do what God has told you to do, you have to do it the same way Jesus did. You know what that means? It means taking all of the debt on yourself. No longer expecting it to be paid, but taking it on yourself. Our sin caused a debt. Jesus said, I will take care of that. And he did it with his blood on the cross. There was nothing easy about it. If you have people in your life that owe you something, again, whether that's an emotional debt, a physical death, a spiritual debt, whatever it is, You take the debt on yourself. You pay the price for it. That's where forgiveness comes from. It is no longer a matter of saying they owe me certain things. And here we'll make this even really practical and easy for you. A lot of people will say they owe me an apology. And before I'm going to get past this, they owe me an apology. Not if you're going to forgive as the Lord forgave you. You take the debt on yourself. And you pay the price for it. Whatever that is. You want to know what the byproduct of that is? It is reconciliation. Look at this in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. That's reconciliation. Physical reconciliation. You were distant, and now you have been brought near through the blood of Jesus Christ. If you have relationships like that in your life where people are distant from you because of the injury and you want to bring them close, then you pay the price. It's hard. You pay the price. But if you do, it breaks the bondage that you have been held captive in. It's for you. 
more for, than for them. It's for you so that you can be set free from it. If they reject, that's up to them. But you've done what you can do. You took the debt on yourself. You erased what was owed to you. And you get to live in the freedom that Jesus promises us. That's good stuff. Now, here's the way it works. He did that for you. So you start doing it for other people. Because we look at what the Lord did for us, it ought to be easy for us to say, I'm going to do that to somebody else. But that's hard in and of itself. Let me take you to the book of 1 John. John teaches that very concept when he writes words like this. 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 19. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. What God has done for you, do for other people. That's the whole teaching of it. The forgiveness that you have received, now extend it to other people. The debt that somebody else took on for you, you take on the debt that somebody else owes you. You love the same way God loved us in Jesus Christ. I had no idea what that might have meant until 20 years ago. And I'd read the book of 1 John over and over and over again, and still, I had missed it. You see, 20 years ago, Tina and I became parents. It's very strange to me to think that Nick, our oldest son, will be 20 in September of this year. But I began to understand what it really meant to love other people with this type of a love when we had kids. Any other parents know what I'm talking about? You, you really do. Pure love begins to make sense to you when you bear children. One of the things that I learned was that when somebody hurts my kids, I desperately want to hurt them. Now let me ask again, any other parents know what I'm talking about? Hurt one of my children and you're going to deal with me. Now the only, only person that I have a relationship with that is stronger than that is my wife, and she has that with me. Hurt my wife and you're going to deal with me. The only time that I have ever seen my quiet, gentle wife really get up in arms was when I had been attacked, and then somebody poked Mama Bear and she was going to deal with it. So... We know what that means. Well, when our children get hurt, when my children get hurt, I want to deal with the people that have hurt them, no matter what it is. Like every parent, that's how it is. Well, I heard a preacher a few years ago talk about this very issue. He was dealing with some problems with a, another relationship in his life, and, and there was no forgiveness, and there really needed to be, and he was wrestling through the whole thing. When one of his boys came walking in the front door of their house, just upset, he was crying. He'd been out playing with a bunch of his friends, and they were playing some, uh, some ball game, and the other kids had run him off of the field, told him that he was worthless, and he had no place in that game, and, and it just crushed his heart. So when he came through the door, all of the emotion was just spilling out of him, and his dad saw that. He got up out of his chair, put his shoes on, and he was going to go deal with those other kids that had hurt his son. And he would say, because of his own wrestling match that he had been praying about right up to that incident, he actually heard the voice of the Lord say to him, where are you going? And he said, I'm going to settle this thing. Nobody's going to hurt my children. And God said back to him, you have the heart of a father. He said, yes, I do. And God said back to him, it hurts you when somebody hurts your children, doesn't it? And he said, oh boy, does it ever. And God said, it does me too. And at that moment, everything began to change for him. And he realized what God had done for him. And the forgiveness that he needed to extend was extended in this other relationship. And they were reconciled to one another. That's the way it works. Because God says, I know what that pain looks like. And I took it all on myself. And you can too. And we can. 
and there is freedom in it. And bondage disappears when we experience that type of freedom. I wish I knew if Jonah ever got to that point. I don't. I really don't. And I know there's other people that choose not to get there themselves because they're angry. started out as anger towards another individual and it progressed into anger towards God. I'm angry at God because he did this or he allowed that or he didn't step in or he hasn't brought judgment on that person. Lightning bolt, make this whole thing all better. God hasn't done it. So that anger even turns into anger towards God in those situations. And that is bondage, spiritual bondage. It's dark there. It smells bad. It feels bad. It's like being in the belly of a fish. And it doesn't have to be that way because of Jesus Christ and what he did for us. I told you that this was a two-part message. I really hope you'll be here next week for the second part. I kind of feel like this was the bad news. Next week, we're going to talk about the good news and how we can make our way through this. I'm going to deal with some common myths of forgiveness, like in order to forgive, you have to forget. We're going to talk about some of those things and, and look at what the Bible says about them. So come back next week so that you can hear that. But today, know this. Because of Jesus Christ, you do not have to live in bondage. You don't have to stay in the darkness where it stinks and feels bad and looks bad. You can get out of it. You do not have to remain in the belly of the fish. It begins with your surrender, progresses into your obedience, and God does the rest, which is pretty cool. It really is. Why don't you stand and pray with us? And so, Father, we find ourselves in a place of surrender, necessary surrender. Without it, we're just stuck. And that's a bad place to be. So would you help us start this process by reminding us that when we surrender to you, we are safe. When we give ourselves over to you, you wrap your arms around us. Take us where we need to go and you hold us tight the whole time. Father, in this realm of forgiveness, this is hard to understand. But for those that have experienced it, they have found freedom. Help us do that. Help us experience it and live it and extend it. These next few moments, we're going to extend this invitation on your behalf, Lord. Would you help people respond? In Jesus' name. Amen.